What advice would you give to someone who wanted to start their own community project? Don't look too far. I feel it's cool to get a vision, but the important things are the small steps. Then things are just slowly taking place. Mistakes are part of it, and I love mistakes because it's so important in the process. But at some point you look back and you oh my gosh, how much energy we've been investing in this path. You would never do this if you had any idea. We did it because we had no idea. We're not in the full control of all the steps, and that was okay. Meet the people who make Burning Man happen. Around the world. The dreamers and doers. The artists, freaks, and fools. Burning Man Live. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Burning Man Live. I'm Stuart Mangrum, and my friend Kbot and I are here today with a very interesting character. This gentleman is a uh, Montreal-based burner who has been bringing the culture of Quebec to Burning Man and vice versa for years in, in some really interesting ways. He is one of the organizers of Montreal's uh, regional burn, Los de Burn, and also a, a pretty cool new makerspace in the city called L'Espace Macaire. You guys can beat up my French pronunciation anytime. Uh, and That's perfect. Okay. And he's also... If that isn't enough, he's also one of the people behind everyone's favorite food-themed theme camp in Black Rock City. Yeah, I'm talking about Midnight Poutine. Welcome and bienvenue, Arnaud Robin. C'est plaisir. My pleasure to be with you. Did I say your name? Or, let, me, let me try that again. Uh, Arnaud Robin? Arnaud Robin. That's right on. Okay, great. <laughs> Let's start with where you are in the world. You are calling in from... Quebec. And I know a lot of our listeners are not familiar at all with Quebecois culture. Tell us a little bit about what makes it unique and different from just, say, the rest of Canada or maybe that other French-speaking country over in Europe. That's a definitely a good question. I will talk for Montreal. I've been living in Montreal for my whole life. I feel there's something like a mixture of languages and also this warm way of connecting with each other, I don't know. There's something warm about Montreal, I feel. There's also like something that has been important for me about being francophone in my different projects. Now, is the French spoken in Montreal, is that significantly different from the French spoken in Paris, or is it pretty much everybody can understand everybody just fine? I don't know, you're right. There's a big accent in Montreal and Quebec. And even if it's easy for us to understand, like, French from France or Africa, Montrealers are, like, kind of squeezing the words, compressing everything. There's definitely, like, a, a big accent, and you can hear it with mine. <laughs> that's pretty obvious. Also, like, in Montreal, that's something uh, interesting about, like, pretty much half of the city is English-speaking, and the other half is French-speaking. So there's also this mixture inside this city that makes it, like, really kind of... Uh, embracing each other. But the language of business in Quebec and in Montreal is French. Yeah. That's the dominant language if you're working and living in the city for the most part. So it's not like just a French-flavored environment. It is French. You're going into another language and another culture when you say cross from Toronto to Montreal. Very different. And I imagine it is the language of uh, food culture as well. 
<laughs> Let's talk about poutine. All right. So I'm a huge fan. I'm a huge fan of, of your camp. I have seen lines there starting around noon for midnight poutine and wrapping most of the way around the city. I heard that to get over that, is it true that this year you built a uh, mobile poutine delivery vehicle on a bicycle? Tell me about that and how that worked out. Yeah, the Flying Friar. That was a really nice project. What'd you call it? It's the Flying Friar. Okay. So it's literally like a fryer on the back of a trike with no motor en engine, just the propane fryer that we built by our own with an old keg. So it's a big keg with three baskets and we were able to do like uh, frying pretty much everywhere. That's pretty much like the, the revolution of Midnight Poutine. If I can come back from like the beginning, my first burn was 10 years ago. And when I came, I was not eating poutine so much. I was not a big fan of poutine. I joined because it was important to me to bring something back out, out of Burning Man. So I joined Midnight Poutine at that point. And it becomes something really important in my way of burning just because of the family it was created. This year, instead of people waiting in line for getting served, Flying Friar is like going somewhere and offer poutine with people that have no idea what it is and maybe have no idea what it tastes. And then we can just decide, hey, you want to just try this new thing? That was something like really refreshing. So instead of offering gift to the people that were like definitely waiting for this gift, just getting like a new kind of connection and relation with people. So yeah, we've been serving the playa, some crews, like building our cars, some friends at DPW, right after the man burn, big crowd, big service. So we did like shit ton of poutine behind, just right after behind the man. So how many poutines can you serve from the Flying Friar in one shot? <laughs> the man burn, that was on Monday, right? This year, we had like some leftovers, some midnight poutine of pretty much everything. I think we served like pretty much 300 poutine. And since we, were, we had leftovers from the camp, but not enough potatoes, we've been asking everybody for potatoes all around. So that was a joke. We were just scavenging all the cams for potatoes, like going at the bar, like, hey, can you ask on the mic if there's any people with rusted potatoes? We had like two potatoes at the time, so that was really intense. Just taking one by one, we've been able to serve like 100 poutine the night of the man burn. That was the intense night for sure. <laughs> for anyone listening, by the way, who's never had the poutine experience, my understanding is that it's, it's a basic treat with three ingredients, right? Mm -hmm. French fried potatoes, fried chips a lovely beef gravy, and uh, cheese curd, which I'm still not sure exactly what it is. I have some friends from uh, from the southern Canadian states, like Minnesota and Wisconsin, who make this. They talk about cheese curd. What exactly is a cheese curd, and, and how do you get it in uh, the wilds of Nevada? Yeah, at some point we were like importing the curds because we had no proper supplier, but we found like near Yosemite a uh, cheesemaker, it's pretty much a really, really young cheddar that you just cut in the process of aging it. Now we found a place that is doing like the right recipe and the, the right saltiness. We had like an agreement with uh, this cheese making company now. And you drive up to Yosemite to get your cheese, right? Someone has to make that trip or does someone bring it to you? How does that work? Yeah, yeah, we do the round trip. But before then, it was in Arizona. Before then, it was from, like, north side, so that was intense. We always had to make a detour to pick up cheese, and that was something huge to keep frozen, keeping the freezing chain proper. 
that was a huge challenge for like a small team just getting like oh we need 300 pounds so now it's just saving our time and like going to Yosemite school but yeah you were skipping like the French potatoes I really want to insist on that because I feel this is definitely what makes the poutine different I don't want to just honor midnight poutine over like many other like poutine makers but I feel the recipe we do is like something different yeah it's all about the crispiness of the fries. People are just asking why it takes so long just to fry and everything. Yeah, it's passionate for sure. Like I have a personal relationship with those potatoes. <laughs> but <laughs> do you double fry them? Do you fry them and then rest them and fry them a second time? Four times. Four times. Okay. Four. Just to make it really crispy on the outside. So yeah, this is something special. <laughs> That's hardcore. Not even the Belgians, who actually invented French fries, not even the Belgians do that. Yeah, that's hardcore Belgian. Yeah, exactly. They do it twice. Yeah. So four times crisped up fries. Oh, my God, that's great. Embryonic cheese. It's kind of like the veal of cheese, right? Exactly. And the gravy. And the gravy is, uh, yes. Well, cool. And this is the proper recipe from Quebec. There's definitely, like, variation, but just doing it from stash. So that's the, the original... OG poutine. You mean that brown powder and you just add water and you whisk it, right? Yeah, that brown powder. <laughs> so fancy. I only know that because I went to a regional with Midnight Poutine and I got to do the gravy. <laughs> so that's the real way they do it in Quebec? Yes, it is. It's yummy. It's salty. It's so delicious. I think about all the time I've wasted making gravy from scratch. <laughs> it's starch, yeah. I think there is something in the packaged gravy aisle called a brown gravy mix that's probably pretty much the same thing. What flavor is it? It's brown flavor. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So, okay, we'll back up a little bit, Arno. I want to know about how you got to Burning Man in the first place and how your experiences changed over time. From the beginning. Ten years ago, pretty much. The first year was uh, 14. And I do remember a friend just was talking to me about what it was. And like at that point, I was doing creative stuff for my own living. So I was an artist creating art installation. And I was definitely looking for like freedom of creation. So that's how I've been like, yeah, Burning Man sounds definitely like the place I need to visit. So I did. And just for the context, I was definitely not speaking English. You listen to my accent right now, like that was really worse than this so yeah that was my first year 10 years ago and like uh, I've been there with no affiliation and I was just looking to understand a bit more and at that moment I came of course like everybody knows like you just realize how powerful it is just experimenting like those kind of connection I like I did realize I, I want to bring something back in Montreal out of this so that's how I decided to try to find a camp from Montreal, and I joined, I joined. I forced myself in Midnight Poutine that year, convincing them to, yeah, yeah, I, you need me, but you. <laughs> There's so many things to learn, so many humans to connect with. So I was definitely like super engaged in the burner scene. Didn't few, not saying many regional burns around. Doing regional burns bring me to uh, co-create a new one in Quebec. At that point, the community in Montreal was really young. Not that young, but small. And I was joining something that definitely was looking for like a lot of energy and that had a lot of potential. 
myself, I've been joining people that were doing like the original decomp. We just talked about like doing original burn. So that's what we did with Lusted Burn. We created Lusted Burn in 16. And then like it become like something small that we, we really wanted to uh, just take care of really step by step. From my first time, I came to creating original burn. And we were like 250 the first year and then 300. This is how we've been looking at it, just to just go small and just to learn how this community will take the um, the culture and like maybe propose something that is definitely influenced by the Montreal, our way of doing it. So that was really rad, I would say. <laughs> yeah, we were looking for something like that is about expressing the best out of the DIY scene, doing a lot with the resources we have, respecting the resources. That's how we did. That's the process we had in, in mind. And now we are doing the seventh edition this year. So that's going well. Can you clarify the name? It sounded a bit to me like Lusty Burn. <laughs> <laughs> so Lusty is a swear word. Lusty Burn is also a reference to a show that was created by like great artists in the 70s. So that was for us a way to uh, make a shout to another period of time when like Montreal was expanding their opening for like West Coast, New York and everything. So that's that's a cultural reference from Quebec that is really difficult to pronounce. And that was kind of funny for us to like listen to this in English. Can you pronounce it? Uh... Lusty to burn. Yeah. <laughs> Say it again, Arno. Lusty to burn, yeah. Lusty burn. Lusty to burn. Lusty to burn. It's just unpronounceable in English. Yeah. Lusty. lusty. Yeah. It is lusty. Yeah. So, Arno, tell us what does Osti mean? Why is that a swear word? Can you go into that a little bit? I think the second year I was involved with Manai Putin, we did an open mic, and one of the members decided to go, hey, I'm going to just teach the swearing in French and in Quebecer. Lusty is one of those words, but there's so many swear words in the Quebecer culture. So, like, Lusty is kind of the the fucking burn or something like that in a, like, proper way. But, like, Lusty, it's the body of the Christ when you go to the church. It's just, like, referring to all... So, you'd call it the host. The host, yeah. The host yeah. is what the Catholics refer to it in English. <laughs> Thanks. It literally means sacred cracker, but, sacred but in practice cracker. it means fucking. Yeah. Okay. Can you give us a bunch... Sorry. I, I want to spend the rest of our time together. Teach me more Quebecois swear words, please. That's the most important part of any cultural exchange. Yeah, I want to hear a chain. <laughs> There's a way you guys do it that's like a chain where you start with one swear word and then you kind of roll into like five or six swear words at once. I want to hear that. Yes, for sure. Let's call it the tabarnak de Chris, kind of. <laughs> <laughs> it's like four swear words in a row. That's means. Piling up like the the expression and exaggerating like if it's frustration, happiness, it can go like many, many ways. You can put it like that way, like it's gonna be really like frustrated. It can be positive also. It refers to so many ways of expressing it's like punctuation in, in Kubaker for sure. That is so interesting. So it goes host, Christ. Chalice, tabernacle is the English translation. Say it again in French. <laughs> Lusty Calis de Chris de Tabarnak. Is it? Yeah. 
Dengske. I was not even sure about the translation. I am learning how to swear in Mexican Spanish right now, and it's curious how much of that comes from the church also, right? You don't tell somebody to fuck off. You send them to the devil, right? <laughs> uh, I want to hear about this makerspace. I think I can pronounce this, Lespas Maker. Mm-hmm. Is that close enough? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really? Lespas Maker? But like, yeah. it's pronounced like Lespace Maker, the Space Maker, like can be many ways also. So you do call it the Space Maker? Yeah. Cool. This was an idea that came to you after going to Burning Man, and yeah, I want to know how you did it. That sounds like something really expensive. Do you have a trust fund, Arno? Are you independently wealthy? Uh, I'm wealthy. Uh, we have so many people like uh, believing in the project. Let's come back from the beginning. You, you were asking okay. where it's coming from, and that's definitely something interesting. Since like we we're doing original burn, we were connecting with so new people. At this point, Montreal Burners was in a renaissance mode. So many new person coming in. The place was made of so much people with a lot of energy. And we were looking, yeah, for a way to express Burning Man culture on the East Coast in Canada and also to connect with each other, to bond with each other more often. So it comes to us like, yeah, a workshop. Example, I had my my workshop doing my art installation with like my collective and blah, blah, blah. But that was small and I was definitely digging to just do those creative projects. And maybe I was not doing those creative more than just sufficient project to make it work. So, of course, when we were looking to create a new place, it was about materiality. It was really important for us just to be connected to the objects. And also, we were just creating things. We were just building things. So, like, the best products was to create a workshop. So, we've been looking. Oh, yeah, there's definitely different models. We were, like, about 30 burners. Some of them were not burners, but vibing for something about, let's do this together. Let's engage ourselves to create a community-oriented makerspace. Lots of people around have been, like, helping us learning from others like from other makerspaces like Boston at the Artisans Asylum. So we learned a lot from that makerspace and we're like, we can create something like this that's gonna offer freedom and connections. Montreal is another city. This is definitely not Somerville, Boston and Massachusetts, but we had access to cheap leads. So we had like a old building and it took us seven months to clean that up, put things in function. And we're doing it only by our own. That's something that was really impressive to me when I first joined like the, the burner scene. So many people had like different professional backgrounds. I just felt it was a really great opportunity to put our expertise in common. So we had a really proper board of members, architect, engineer, accountant, myself as an entrepreneurial artist. So we were ready to go. So we ran a place for 20 years and we've been renovating. And now, yeah, there's 250 members. There's about 12 shops, wood shop, middle shop, lots of communal, uh, some artists, artisans who have their own private place. And yeah, once a year, we do a big, big fundraiser event for Halloween, Pandemonium, talking about the devil. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, let's hear more about that because... How you fund these things is a big question for a lot of people. A lot of people just say, well, I could never do that because I could never raise the money for it. Tell us about Pandemonium. Yeah, exactly. That's the other question we're asking. How? How to start this? So there's the money for sure. 
I talked about the social engagement participation. That was definitely like a good momentum. And then we had to prove that we were able to rent that space and make something out of it. For the first step, that was, yeah, we have a lot of human resources, human power. Let's clean that place out and let's do a huge party that's going to be a fundraiser. So Pandemonium 1 was the first event we did in this building. 750 person, about 20,000 of benefit. And right now, this year, it's going to be 1,000 people. We're aiming for 50,000 of benefit too, 300 volunteers. So this is definitely something that was important to us to take the things by our own create our own way and doing this we have more people joining and willing to help for financial aspect by example some some people have been like just offering to lend some money or just to offer some money to the project just to start and we're starting like really small steps by small steps doing everything by our own was also the the cheapest way the way to do and maybe the more sustainable way also and finally, we're asking for public funding. And this is something important in Quebec, Canada, like for those projects in social economy, there's funding that can be like accorded to a different step of your project. So at that point, we had some public funding, private funding, and lots of events as fundraiser. So that was our own way to just to keep the things rolling, do things simple, step by step. And five years after this first beginning, it's now like totally self-autonomous and we are looking to expand the project for a bigger phase and maybe buy the building if we are capable of. But that building, I mean, when you moved in there, it was a mess. Oh, yeah. You and your friends summoned an army of people to rehabilitate that building. I remember the photos of when they poured the concrete floor and it was just a group of what, like five or six people leveling out the floor on their own. It's just incredible. When you put brilliant humans together, not talking about myself, when you put those people together, they are able to fix pretty much everything. For the context, at that point, I was pushing yourself. For example, I was chatting with Alaric, one of the co-founders, and we were remembering why we did this. For Alaric, that was clear. He was involved in a really big project from Montreal, Fire Tetris. That is a old project that was happening at Burning Man 2000. I think it was 16. Kirsten, can you help me? I think it was 15. It was the year that everything was really, really cold outside. Oh, yes, you're right. Gosh. That was a huge, huge project for Montreal. And Jody Mack was leading the project. And they had no place to build that up. And they were building during the spring. It was cold outside, and the only place they had to build that up was in the parking lot next to Jody's place. That was making no sense to create a large-scale project, and they were definitely looking for other place, other way to do it, but this is huge. So that's how we decided, yeah, we need to do this. And Alaric, by example, is like an engineer, so we have this old building. What should we do? Let's redo the floor. Like, that's the best way to do it. There's nothing... We had an army, and like Matt Bass, also part of the Flying Friar, we have been coordinating the session. So that was always kind of a game. Okay, we have this kind of crazy project that is not so crazy, that's renovation. We can ask for somebody to do it, or we can do it by our own. So we did step-by-step step by our own, and that was always so much things to learn. It took us one year just to renovate and be sure the building was ready to accept the phase A of uh, Les Bossmaker. 
So that was lots of hours and pizza. <laughs> and now the building is half kind of done and half habitable. Mm -hmm. And then the other half of the building is kind of derelict. And you have just managed to secure funding and you have a plan and you're actually going to rehabilitate the second half of the building. Yeah, there's something important in this way of doing. I feel we were creating a communal shop for artists and artisans, and we are still. It was important for those artists to, no, not important, but really beneficial for keeping their expenses low. So my point of view, as a, like I was doing art for my own living, if you keep it low, maybe you have more freedom of choosing what you're going to create, what you're going to do. For the cultural development, that's the thing we are like proposing. If we were putting more things in common, it will definitely create more affordable spaces for artists, artisans, and also maybe create many other aspects on our impacts about engagement between different field of work, different people from different backgrounds, and engaging ourselves also in like the neighborhood we're living in. So there's so many aspects we are like experimenting right now. And the next phases are really made of creating more affordable spaces for artists and artisans and plus, plus, plus. Arno, I'd, I'd like to hear more about how you find and work with all these uh, smart people that you found. I mean, are these just people that you knew from Burning Man? Do you meet them through local regional events and groups? And is it very much self-organizing? Or what's the style involved in trying to, as we say, herd all those cats, all those smart, smart cats? That's a good question. All those answers, yeah, that's people, we met each other at Burning Man, we met at Regional Burns or like events, and then finally we've been creating a space that is also inviting more people to join. So the way we do for managing this space is really self-manage. So there's a lot of project upcoming, committees, way of opening discussion or working tables, and something it becomes permanent, some other times it's not. For example, like all those shops, the permanent shops do have like a committees of volunteers that is organizing the space, keeping the safety proper, be sure that they are offering classes and managing their finances. There's about 12 committees like this. Example, there's a new project upcoming. So we are looking to make a, a recuperatum. It's a repair center for materials. So there's a new committee that is going to be built and we're going to look at how we can do it by our own. So that's really oriented for like volunteer-based engagement. And that's what we did since the beginning. Like at the moment, we have an idea that should become real or like that should be discussed. Let's put it on the table and we see where it goes. I'm not very handy. I always have ideas and sometimes they work out and sometimes they don't. But I did go to the makerspace and I did the basic woodworking course. As a woman who is a little bit clumsy, um, this can be very intimidating. And it was very empowering and very refreshing to work with people who were going to work with you at your own level. And that's something that was quite new to me. And I think that's really a powerful thing that makerspaces can do, especially burner makerspaces, where it's like, oh, you have an idea or you want to do a thing? Great, do it. Well, how? A lot of those kinds of projects can be very intimidating, welding, woodworking, ceramics, all that kind of work. I was just 
I was kind of enamored with how the makerspace community let you in and just let you do your thing without any judgment. It's sometimes, by my perspective, feel a bit intimidating. Like you say, like a makerspace, a lot of people knows, and it's really like technical oriented. And for us, it was important to keep a fun, funny moment when we can just learn, play and create things. This is easy to say, like many other makerspaces are saying the same, but I feel for us that was creating events. Doing an event is like getting the pressure really lower to create some new things and try some new things. Last winter, we did insomnia. We never did any overnight event for Nuit Blanche. So it's a night uh, in Montreal. All the um, shops, the, the workshops, the artists are opening their door to give access and express culture for everybody passing by. Nuit Blanche means white night, and it means that the entire city, the entire sort of cultural mechanism of the city opens for the entire night. The museums are open, all the artist studios are open, there are parties and gatherings, and Makerspace, uh, L'Espace Maker, has done that twice now, where you participate and you open your doors for the whole night. Thank you so much for the precision. So yeah, last year, it was the first time we did Insomnia. Insomnia was an event we were creating to propose place to try to create new things. So like many artists have been invited and they were like, okay, this is an open field. So you do have like all this space, the space we are not occupying in the building right now. We're just taking and expanding another space. So they just decided like, hey, we're going to create a labyrinth. People will pass by and it's going to be also an exhibition. So many people have been joining, just flowing in and like trying things they will never try in their other context. So that's important for us to keep that perspective or that moment possible. I feel events are like just getting the stress lower to try new things and give ourselves the right for failure. That was so important from the beginning and still that was the case like for insomnia that's really oriented for like creating new things, but also for pandemonium, inviting so many artists to join and maybe try some new stuff. We are together. We are just like between us. Yeah, thousands of us. But it's an important moment just to express what we want to do, what we want to be. That's a freedom gesture of creation in my perspective. What advice would you give to someone who wanted to start their own community project? Don't look too far. I feel it's cool to get objective and like a vision, but the important things are the small steps. Just looking at what you can do to create one step and the other, and then things are just slowly taking place. Mistakes are part of it for myself, and I love mistakes because it's so important in the process. It's really impressive. At some point, you look back and you oh my gosh, how much energy we've been investing in this path. But you would never do this if you had any idea. We did it because we had no idea. We we're not in the full control of all the steps. And that was okay. And it's still part of how I like. I love to do this. What would you warn them against? Apart from not looking too far ahead, are there any other things that you would not want people to repeat? Mistakes that you don't want people to make? Or are all mistakes valid at this point? I would say... Something I learned at the beginning was the rhythm. Sometimes when you 
become really impatient. The excitation, the passion, like brings things really, really clear and you want to go fast. But when you're creating that kind of project, I feel it's really important for all of us to just understand it's going to take time and creating the right rhythm to be sure it's respectful, sustainable, and healthy. This is something that was a really important learning for me in the first year. For myself, for my friends, for many of my friends that have been like close to the burnout or burning out, literally, we need to be careful. Arno, whenever I talk with people uh, who, like yourself, are taking this culture of Burning Man out into the world, I'm always curious to see how it fits or doesn't fit in different cultures, different languages, and all that. I know linguistically, I've I've seen this before, words like decommodification. That's not even really a word in English. But <laughs> I'm curious what you feel about the 10 principles in your work and if there are any that uh, particularly speak to you or any that you just kind of go, eh, whatever. I think that's always instructive to all of us to see how the culture is spreading out in the world. Yeah, I love to do this and go in other regionals to understand their perspective and their local understanding of what it can be. For me, the context of the engagement, the participation, that was so impressive to me, so powerful. That's definitely something that we've been embracing since the beginning. And at the moment, the invitation is open. The transparency is there. There's so many people that are willing to offer and give so much. This is something definitely so important in my perspective at what Burning Man has been in our project in Montreal, in the Burner City of Montreal. I really see the principle as a balance of things and perspective about the balance is really important. So yeah, for me, that was looking to engage myself, creating impacts and maybe bringing back what is a really huge shortcut to create like a collective boundness that was the best way to do. There are so many recipes. Doing like those fundraisers we do, it's so inspired by things we saw around the Burning Man culture. Why? So much people have been trying to create new ideas that of course there's good ideas in the process. So when we are trying new things, there are so many things we get inspired by. At the moment you offer a proper way to engage and be collectively associated, people are still really willing to to join. It's also something missing sometime in our cities. I will talk with Montreal. I mean, it's a small city. I think we know each other by two person or something like that. It's like a huge village. And even there, we are not so like close to each other. We live in our neighborhood without talking to the neighbors. This is something really common, I think, in big cities anywhere. Just creating pretexts for bonding is really important that are not intrusive. So creating a space that is chosen at the specific moment in your living time and your living schedule, and then you can engage yourself and take yourself out of your uh, loneliness. This is also a good and important context to create in the in cities. And at the moment, you offer this and you offer the people from any scenes, not only the burner scene, a way to be bigger than themselves. They are so passionate about it. They are so engaged. This is impressive. So you're talking about the creation of third spaces. Yeah, totally. 
creating a third space that's not your home, that's not your work, that's a collective shared space where people can come together. Exactly. And that is not definitely religion. That is like affiliated to some other values that are maybe more independent or maybe more locally affiliated. So this is something important, like those third places. I feel there's a missing connection there. And yeah, a community workshop is one way, but like there's so many other circumstances we can create and generate. It's it's infinite. Yeah, it sounds like to me like you're talking about belonging too, which is definitely in short supply in our world. Uh, even before the pandemic, there was a lot of alienation and isolation and so many societal forces driving us apart from each other. I hear you that having a force in the world that brings us together to do things together, it's a pretty powerful thing, right? And there's not a lot of it, not enough of it in the world. And places where you can both work and play, and they're kind of intermingled. So yeah, maybe you're creating something together, maybe you're building a project or creating an event, but you're also playing and building social connections that are you know, curious and, and experimental, but also educational. Did you just drop the theme there, K-Bot? Did you just say curious, sir? No, you just said curious. I Never mind. might have. <laughs> we'll come back to that. Uh, so, yeah, speaking of the future, Arno, what's, what's next for you? What do you got coming up in, uh, in the year ahead? That's a great question. We do have pandemonium. We haven't talked about it so much, but huge event, lots of people, lots of energy. Tell us more about pandemonium. What, if I go to pandemonium, what am I going to experience? It's a big chaotic space with so many creative humans that are just digging to create something by their own. So it's like an old garage and then lots of new flavors. So yeah, there's a roller disco. There's many thematic sounds scenic. There's a performance, vaudeville performance theater. There's so many things at the same place. So yeah, that's 20,000 square feet, huge party that is happening only once a year in Montreal. So Stuart, mm -hmm. we can't explain it. It's just like Burning Man. <laughs> you have to just go. <laughs> it sounds a lot like Burning Man. I'm just saying. I know it's not, but it sounds like Burning Man in a warehouse. <laughs> but you're, you're right. What's impressive to me about the Penny of course, it's really like Burning Man flavored. Lots of us have been, are like calling ourselves burners and we are like coordinating and doing like the organization of the place. This is all about engagement, participation, inclusion, transparency. What was impressive to me, so many other scenes have been like, yeah, we are digging into this. We do understand and we want to help creating that space that uh, is like building crazy project, Let's Pass Maker but also like be part of this whole thing together. So there's people from like rainbow gatherings or like uh, size scenes, like more musical scenes. And like many collectives are doing their own projects. So this is something kind of a really local, bringing like so many other people at the same place. So, so much passion, many ways to do it. And we're learning how to coexist in this specific event. Sounds really great. And it results in amazing cross-pollinations, yeah. Your community for the space, that's that's wonderful. So next year in Black Rock City, will there be poutine again? 
<laughs> yeah, it's like this year was kind of funny that I was kind of looking for my base. Yeah. And yeah, I feel there's still something I want to come back to. So yeah, next year I bet I'll be around. Bringing the Flying Fryer was intense, but so magical connections. So yeah, the next year will be made of definitely preparing a comeback to Burning Man again. And also lots of new things. We are looking to buy the building at the makerspace. There's many challenges with the original burn. And I would love to create a bit more. Since like I'm more coordinating things right now, I would love to go back about like creations and doing things uh, out of my head for the fun of doing it. And this is something important also, like, uh, Kristen, you were asking, like, ways to uh, maybe don't lose yourself in a, in a way. That's the way I'm looking at it. So, yeah, just kind of, like, still remembering and respecting why you did it at the first place. So that's why I'm looking for right now, just to be sure I'm, like, still having fun and still doing the things that are important about creating and do new things. Flying Fryer was a good example at Burning Man. That was nice. Next year, maybe put some pontoons on the Flying Friar. <laughs> or make it into an airboat. I want an airboat. Of course, it won't rain again, but I, I'll have an airboat. That's funny, though. <laughs> the Floating Friar, I think. <laughs> that could work. The Floating Friar, yeah. That, that would be nice. The Flying Floater. <laughs> well, Arno, is there, is there anything else you want to tell us? No pressure. But that's an important question. <laughs> I was not. I was trying not to overprepare for this uh, discussion, but I feel this is something important for me. What's about Burning Man? I mean, I've been investing a lot of my energy in the last nine years, learning a lot from Burning Man culture, and also trying to engage myself in impacts related to this. And I do feel this is something that is so important in our way of creating great local, like my perspective is just like, I feel local solutions can definitely help finding the right impacts and also like creating engagement. I really would love to connect this more with PRC than I was in the five last years. I feel there's something still so interesting about going at BRC. Uh, and I, I remembered this going back, trying things and set yourself for like just playing i love this and i love the way it's so needed in the burner scene you can ask anything everybody will say yes if there's fun involved in the in the process this is really meshing in the culture and this is something important to remember otherwise like you're gonna lose it that's fundamental that's my thinking out of my burning man this year <laughs> yeah <laughs> I love that. Ask anything and they'll say yes if there's fun involved in the process. That kind of sums it up. <laughs> we call it the Tom Sawyer approach to organizing here. Would you like to whitewash a fence? <laughs> anyway, it's great talking to you. Our guest is the exceptionally lusty Arno Robin, <laughs> Dr. Robin. <laughs> from Montreal. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for coming on the show, my friend. Thank you so much. I will prepare you some poutine next burn. I'm coming. No worries. Consider, I don't know, I, I don't want to mess with the time-tested recipe, but a little bit of crumbled bacon on it. Just saying. Bacon never made anything worse. Maybe smoked meat is the, that's the best addition on it. Yeah, I'll bring some then. Bacon makes everything better. What was really special about the flying fryer, 
we add some green onions topping on the top. Oh. It looks so great and a little more vegetable. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah, more healthy. Healthy, exactly. Less brown. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks a lot. Thank you all. My pleasure. Ciao. Bye. Bye. And as they say in Quebec, merci tout le monde. It's a wrap. You have been listening to Burning Man Live, which is, was, and will hopefully always be a non-profit production brought to you commercial-free by Burning Man Project. Thank you to everyone who listened. Merci to everyone who tells a friend. Thanks to all of you who send us email at live at burningman.org. And thanks to all of you who drop a tax-deductible donation into the coin slot at donate.burningman.org. I want to thank everyone who made this episode possible. Thank you to my friends Vav, Stuart, Rocky, Action Girl, Tyler, Ali, Dietz, Christy, the entire Burning Man Project communications team, and thanks Larry. <laughs>